Morning, everybody. Uh, great to see you uh, today. Uh, so we're talking about Romans, as Brian just said, his famous verse in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for all people. So there's something powerful. I tried to take last week and go through just historically, you know, when we have seen that power kind of be revealed. The word reveal is really important in the sermon today. There is a picture. That's why I have this here. What Romans is really telling us is that a picture has been painted, but it's not a painting. It's a person. It's a correct picture of who God is, and it's found, it's found in Jesus Christ. So what you see as you read through the Bible in Exodus 20, you see this famous thing called the Ten Commandments. And the first command is, you know, God should be first. Everything's going to flow from there. But the second one is like no graven images. And you might have said like something that I've said most of my life. What, you know, why? What's the big deal with kind of like making this image? So you would create this image or a picture of God, like a picture of God. What is the problem? What's the problem with doing that? Here's the problem with doing this. This is why God said don't do it. Don't make, the, don't make an idol. Don't make a graven image. Because if we make it, if we create it, we're going to get it wrong. We're not going to get it just right. Like it might work, it might work for me, but there's going to be a whole bunch of people that it doesn't work for because it's not actually the exact representation of God. You're, you're going to get it wrong. So I've heard about this all my life. I've actually never seen one of these, the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. Has anybody ever seen the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus? Anybody, anybody will participate in this. Never, it works for me. It's great. Uh, the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, but it might not work for everybody. So see, here's, I've never seen one and where our office is, and realize this my whole life I haven't seen one. I'm like, what is this thing? And so finally one day, just right under, 10 feet below me, there is a big picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Here's the reason why we're told don't make the image because you're going to get it wrong. Like if we create the image, we're going to get it. God says, wait for me. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to make the image and the image is going to be a masterpiece. And it's not going to be a painting. It's going to be a person. It's going to be Jesus Christ. And then Romans, right, unveils it. We see it unveiled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus Christ. What is the exact representation? The exact representation is Jesus. It's what we see Jesus saying and doing and acting and reacting. It's who he is. That is the exact representation. We, a lot of times we can get really confused. Well, how, what, and who is God, and how would God, act? and what does God think is okay and not okay, and all this stuff, you know, about God. I'd mentioned last week in the introduction to all this, the most famous sermon that has ever been preached in the United States of America was given by Jonathan Edwards. And that sermon preached over 200 years ago now still affects us to this, to this day. Here in Arlington County where we sit this morning, that, that sermon is a sign reading for high school students in Arlington. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in it, there's a line. It says, God holds you over a fire like you would hold an insect ready to be burned. How do you like that picture? Right? So that's the picture. That's the picture he had. And there's probably some reasons why he had that picture. But that has, that is really colored for many people in the United States of America, a picture of God. Is that the accurate picture of God? Does God view you as an insect that he's getting ready to drop into the fire? It says that God abhors you. Abhors you. Is that the way God views you? Right. So today, we're really talking a lot. And actually, for the next few weeks, what is the picture of God? And what Romans tells us is that it is Jesus Christ. It's something called the gospel, which we're going to get into in just a moment. The gospel simply is this. It's the story. 
It's a story. Gospel actually represents the news media of all things. It's the news. It's not advice about how we live our life. It's actually news about who Jesus Christ was, who he was, what he did, how he acted, how he reacted, what he thought. All of the things, it's all the story about Jesus Christ. When we have the wrong picture of God, it takes us in a bad direction. It's like your car, if you drove here this morning, right? The car that you were in, the, the front windshield was huge. Why? Why was it so big and the rear view is so small of where you've been? Because you, your view of where you're going is going to determine so much about your direction. And the same is true of the picture that we have in our heads about God. Now, I grew up in this area. I went to, I was a Wakefield warrior. I went my freshman year. Thank you very much. I was a Wakefield warrior. And then in my sophomore year, a little bit into the sophomore year, my parents decided to send me uh, from Wakefield to Bishop Ireton High School. Bishop Ireton is an all-boy, obviously Catholic, an all-boy Catholic school in Alexandria. We had a sister school called St. Mary's, an all-girls school on Russell Road in Alexandria. I started late. I'm an introvert. I was also, I was very small. Uh, my sophomore year, I was probably four foot nine, ten, maybe eleven, five foot at the most. I was small. I was introvert. I started late. I was an outsider. All these things, I had it all working against me. But I loved to ski. I loved to snow ski. And so Bishop Ireton arranged for a trip with St. Mary's. We all show up very early on a Saturday morning. We pile on two huge buses and we go up to Blue Knob, Pennsylvania, to ski at at, at Blue Knob. So on the way up there, first of all, we left late, which is driving me nuts because I love to ski. I'm like, oh my gosh, you see what time it is? We're gonna get there like an hour late. This is an hour less skiing. So we get there and right before we leave the bus, they say, hey, by the way, the, you know, the lift shut down at five o'clock, but everybody needs to be back here at 3.30. We have to leave at 3.30. I'm like, what? This is, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. So I go out, I ski most of the day by myself because I really didn't know many people, but I'm an introvert and that's okay. And I didn't want anybody slowing me down. But at the end of the day, like I was getting ready to leave. I was getting ready to take off the skis and just go, right? I ran into like five guys that I knew. Didn't know them well. Five guys like, hey, we're going down for one last run. We're going to do the hardest run here. It's going to be awesome. And I said, well, you think we can do it? Can you guys do it quick? And I didn't know. I didn't ski with them. I don't know if they're any good. Like, oh, yeah, we got it covered. We're great. Let's go down. It's like, okay, let's go. We start going down and all of them are really no good, but one of them is terrible. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just, it's poles and it's skis and it's hats and it's gloves. It's all over. And I spend the entire run, the longest run, the hardest run there. I spend the whole time, it's miserable skiing because all I do is I collect, I collect all the way. And the thought hit me going down. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to leave these guys. And I just bolt down, get on the bus. I'm all good. And I'm watching the clock, watching the clock. Oh my gosh. So we're supposed to be back at 3.30. I end up staying. I end up staying to help, to help these guys out just to get them down as quickly as possible. And we get back and it's 4.30. We're an hour late. Everybody's on the bus. Now here's the thing. All of them are on the other bus. I am on the one bus all by myself. Okay. Nobody else knows. So I walk on by myself. Everybody else is on there. What do you think happened when I walked on that bus? Jerk! Idiot! Those are just the things I can tell you. Right? You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of language being just, they're just, I mean, I'm getting peppered, nailed. People are just letting me have it. And the priest is right on the front of the bus and he's just sitting there. He doesn't say a word. It's like, oh man, he doesn't stand up. But there was a girl from St. Mary's. I have no idea who she was. I don't know her name. To this day, I didn't know who she was. I never recognized, never met her before in my life. And she stands up and she says, all of you shut up and sit down. I'm like, God bless her. This is the, <laughs> this, this woman is fantastic. What picture do you think that everybody on that bus had of me. 
right? So it wasn't an accurate picture, but I can't do anything about it. You know, like I had people get up in my face afterwards and cursing at me and screaming. But everybody had a wrong, a wrong picture. When we have a wrong picture of who God is, it takes us to places that we should not go. So here we go. We're just going to go through these verses. Romans chapter 1, going to start in verse number 17. Scholars will tell you that the nutshell of the gospel, like what is the gospel, this thing, there's more references to this thing called the gospel than any other place in the Bible in the book of Romans. Here is what it is. So we're just going to read it. For in the gospel, the gospel is the story of the life and death of Jesus. It's who Jesus, it is who, it's the masterpiece who Jesus Christ is. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's unveiled. This incredible masterpiece, this exact representation. Who is God? Well, it's Jesus. It is revealed. The word righteousness in its broadest sense, everybody means, oh, righteous. Are you righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? In the broadest sense, the word righteous means the way things should be. Think of Goldilocks with you, okay? Goldilocks. She goes around. You all know the story of Goldilocks? Right? She goes around the table. She looks for the perfect seat. Ah, she finally hits. This is right. She tastes all the porridge. She, it's just right. That's what righteousness means. Like, okay, a lot of pictures of God have been painted in the world, a lot of them, but Jesus has got it right. I might pay a, paint a picture of God to you. Incorrect. Jesus has it right. Somebody else has painted a picture. I, I, I do most of my time when people come, hey, can I talk to you because I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure I believe in God. And we don't have an intellectual argument. All we do is talk about who is God. Because people say, well, that's not the God that was presented to me. That's not the picture that I got. So this is critically important. Because when, when Luther and Wesley and Augustine, when people capture the right picture of God, it is absolutely powerful. And it doesn't cause individual change. It can cause actually global change. Here, let's continue. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, once we understand the picture is Jesus Christ and we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus, and if you want to talk, if, if you say, hey, John, I really want to understand more about God. I really want to grow in my relationship with, with God. I really want to take the next step spiritually. I would tell you, stick with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus, because that's where the picture is painted. That's where the masterpiece is unveiled. And those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that's the exact representation of who God is. And when you say, you know what, from faith, it's like, I'm going to live by, I'm going to live by that masterpiece. I, m- maybe there's all kinds of other confusion things and all kinds of other messages going, but you know what, I'm going to live by that masterpiece that's been painted of who Jesus Christ is because we're told he's the exact representation. Okay. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. So we have two things revealed. The righteousness is being revealed by the gospel, but it's also revealing something else. It's revealing a wrath. A lot of people have trouble with the wrath of God. Like, I don't believe in a wrathful God. I don't believe in a judgmental God. And then something unjust happens to you, and you're like, where's justice? Right? We love justice. And actually, maybe it's been painted to you the wrong way, but we really need a wrath of God. We really need a God of wrath because when I've been mistreated, I say, God, where are you? Or when I see something that goes really bad in the world, I say, God, where are you? Come down. The, see, the wrath, the opposite 
of wrath. I mean, love and wrath. It's not. You have to have love to have wrath. The opposite would be indifference. The opposite is I don't care. You have a parent and they see their child hurting. What would you think of that parent who said, ah, whatever? Who cares? Let them hurt, let them cry, let them scream, whatever. No, 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 no. You love that child, and so you're not going to be indifferent. You do something about it. So we crave the wrath of God because it's his justice. It's where God says, I love you. Love causes us to rise up and do something. I tell you a terrible, this is a terrible story. I'll tell you a terrible story. Uh, We know a family that has just been riddled, 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 riddled with problems. And uh, the father is now passed away. He actually passed away a while ago. This father was sexually abusing his teenage daughter. And the family, particularly the mother, knew about it and didn't do anything about it. Now, everybody, what you need in that moment is you need wrath. Are we clear? You need somebody to say, no more. I'm coming down. This is wrong. Stop it. That's what should have happened. But we lacked wrath. Instead, we had indifference. And now we have a whole family that's in massive trauma as a result of it. That's wrath. Let's continue. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all. And here's two very important words. Godlessness and wickedness. Godless. What is godlessness? That word is defined here in the Greek as having a disrespect or a disdain or I could care less about God. So in these famous Ten Commandments, we say, put God first. Okay, I'm not going to put you first. I'm going to do my own thing. Godlessness. I have a total disrespect for you. I will chart my own course. I don't care what you say. I don't care about your standards. I'm going to decide. It's my life. It's my life. I'm going to do things my way. That's what godlessness means. But it always leads to wickedness. What's wickedness? Wickedness is a disrespect for people. So that if you break down the Ten Commandments, the first four are all about your relationship and your respect for God. The last six are all about your relationship and your respect for other people. And what is being said here is if I disdain God and disdain His standards and I chart my own course, it's going to lead me towards creating havoc in my own life and havoc in your life. That's what's so practical. It's the beautiful thing. That's why C.S. Lewis said all theology basically is practical. It's very practical. When I say, God, I don't care about your standards. I'll, I'll, make my own, I'll make my own up and I'll do my own thing. It's going to lead to the problem in your life and the problem in so many other people's lives. It's, it's being revealed. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Here Paul is reflecting in these verses on Genesis chapter 1 to 4. And he's talking about how things, so, so we have Adam and Eve in the garden, and we have God says, okay, here's a standard. Once you live this standard, they're like, we don't care about your standard. We're going to do our own thing. They chart their own course. And then what, what do you end up with? You end up with Cain killing his brother Abel. So there's this digression. In the book of Judges in, in the Old Testament, you have this phrase that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And you have story after story after story after story after story of how society plunges to the depths when we all do what is right in our own instead of recognizing that there is, a st- there is a standard. Today's message is entitled, Let Justice Roll Down. Here's the question. Roll down from where? Where's justice rolling down from? Where's that, what's that famous line telling us? Roll down from where? Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Basically, we have a sense of right and wrong. Oh, I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know I shouldn't say that, but I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to do it anyway. There's a sense of right and wrong and justice, and we're trying to push that down. Verse 21. Here's where the answer to this is. The answer to this problem lies in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified, in other words, praised God, in other words, put God in what God represents and God's standards and who God is, who God is in the world, God of justice. They never said, okay, you're top of the list, praise God. They neither glorified him nor gave God thanks. Now, that might seem anticlimactic, like give God thanks. What? I mean, they have all these problems because they have bad manners. They start to say, thank you. I mean, we teach our kids to say, thank you. Is that the problem? Is the problem because they have bad manners? They didn't glorify God and they didn't say thanks. I'll tell you two things about this right here, about giving thanks to God. Here it is. I'm going to give you great marriage advice. If you're married, you're sitting next to your spouse, wake them up real quick. Tell them, listen, I'm going to give you excellent foundational marriage advice that will actually change your marriage. Proven fact. Proven fact. If you're thinking about getting married, also listen. Okay? So here you go. A way to have a great marriage is to uh, be thankful and to give acknowledgement and appreciation uh, to the, your spouse all the time as much as possible. There's something called a daily temperature reading. Couples have used this for years. First step in the daily temperature reading is appreciation. Appreciation. What happens natural? We have a natural gravitational pull that we begin to pull back from like when we first start dating or getting married. It's like, oh, I love you so much. Everything's just great and it's wonderful. But eventually, but something goes down. It pulls us down and we just start thinking about us. And when you're thankful and you're like, hey, thank you. Thank you for taking out the trash. Thank you for doing this. Or thank you for doing this. Taking care. Whatever it might be, thank you. Or I appreciate that about you. It turns you outward. It makes you move away from yourself. And it allows the relationship to live. We start with the good. We start with the good. It's a well-known fact. Second thing I want to say about this, plagiarism. Plagiarism. That is not giving acknowledgement. It's not giving thanks. Hey, John, did you write that? That was really good. Did you write that? Gosh, I wish I wrote it, but I didn't. Right? I didn't. I have to acknowledge that there's somebody else there. Somebody else has created the world. Somebody else has put the planets in place. Somebody else has set the standards. And when I acknowledge that I can't chart my own course, that there's a standard from God, that justice is rolling down from somewhere, when I do that, that means I then have to be dependent upon that God and I have to go to the masterpiece here, which is Jesus Christ, and say, what would you do? What would you say? How would you act? How would you react? Is my life reflecting the life that I see in the perfect representation of God, which is found in Jesus Christ? I run it through that filter all the time. And when I do, and I have that picture of God, there is something powerful about that because I don't chart my own course. I have one fill in the blank for you today. Faith means constraint. Faith means constraint. When I'm in a relationship with somebody, love, love has its standards. God has standards. Love has standards. Of course, the two go together. When I, you know, when, when I got married, I couldn't just do my own thing anymore. It was like, hello, wake up. I just can't play basketball all night, which I love to do all the time. I can't do that anymore. There's somebody else out of respect for them. There's a certain standard to our relationship for our relationship to function. You can't have two people just doing their own thing. Now they, and so with God, we have to say, God, what are your standards? 
What are your standards? Then we live by that because justice has to roll down from somewhere. There's a standard, there's a right, there's a wrong, and we seek to suppress it. Uh, Phantom of the Opera. Anybody ever been Phantom of the Opera? Yeah, it's good. So uh, there is a famous song from Phantom, The Music of the Night. I want to read you two lines. Listen to this. Listen to this. Close your eyes, for your eyes will only tell the truth. And the truth isn't what you want to see. What's being said there? We have an aversion, an aversion to the constraints and the standards of God. There's a natural aversion that exists in all of us, right? You might say, oh, no, no, I know somebody, and man, they're just all, in, they're just all into Jesus. The gospel says that it's offensive. There's something that rubs us the wrong way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I didn't create. I didn't create the picture of Jesus. He did, which means there's something that challenges me. There's something that That's one of the ways we begin to understand the power of Jesus' life. We know we're starting to understand the power when something like, oh, man, mm, that stings, C.S. Lewis says, you shouldn't walk out of church all the time like, hey, yeah, great, great. There's something should say, oh, my gosh, because if it's the act, if I'm painting the picture, then I should be like copacetic with everything. But if God's painting the picture, there's something there that should rub me the wrong, should rub me the wrong way. There's an aversion. There's an aversion to God's standards and God's constraints. Then there's a diversion away from it. And then there's always a perversion where we slide downhill into something and some kind of mess that we don't want to be in. And that is the story of the Bible. Okay. The woman uh, caught in adultery. John chapter 8, I believe, if I remember correctly. It's a beautiful picture. And here's, here's love. Here's love. Love is I love you no matter what. That's the love of God. I love you no matter what. But what love is never, is never, is never live any way you want. Love would never be that way. I would never treat my kids that way. I sure hope my parents would never treat me that way. God would never treat us that way because God loves us that much. So, so he's brought this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And Leviticus chapter 20 says that she should be killed on the spot. She should be put to death on the spot. And so they say, okay, Jesus, what say you? And then he does an amazing thing. He's like, yes, he knows what the scripture says. He knows exactly what it says, but he makes this amendment to it. He changes it. He, he extends grace. He extends mercy. He actually defends her. He was fascinating. We only have one sermon that Jesus ever wrote down, and that was it. We don't know what it said. They did, and they all ran away. They all ran away. So he protects her. What a wonderful moment of mercy and grace. Is that your picture of God? But then he adds to it. He's not over with. What does he say? What's his last line? Go and sin no more. This is not the way for you. There is a standard. And if you stay in my lane, not your lane, if you stay in my lane, okay, that's the right picture of me. So, right, I'll love you no matter what, but that does never mean you live any way you want. God has something better in place for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I just want to read the third verse. It says, the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I want to encourage you. Can you see Jesus saying that? Can you see Jesus doing that? Ask yourself that question on a constant basis. Is this how Jesus would function in the world? 
And if we live our lives with that picture in our head, it will radically change and transform. The Bible says, actually, Romans says, there's power. There's power in that name. Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say back? He says, Philip, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I am the exact representation of God. I talked last week on Grace Live about the 60s and 70s. I thought I'd just talk a little bit more about this. Is that okay, 60s and 70s? A little bit. Very interesting time uh, for our nation. Uh, actually, some things today, actually kind of some, some ways parallel, you know, what's going on. But the 60s and 70s were the time of peace and love, right? Okay, some people in this room are old enough, but I, 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 I see that, you know, some of the music from that era has kind of come back in some ways, so at least you guys feel a, a little bit attached to it in some ways. I wasn't born to the late 80s myself, but back in the... Uh Back in, the, back in the 60s, you know, and 70s, it was all about peace and love and free sex and sex and jug, drugs and rock and roll. And Timothy Leary, who was a clinical psychologist out of Harvard, what did he say? He said, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Then we had this amazing... Uh, music festival called Woodstock. I actually had a theology professor in college that went to Woodstock, told some pretty great stories. Here's the problem of free sex and drugs and rock and roll and all that. We found out there's a pretty high price to be paid. It's actually not free. We actually found out there's a lot of pain and suffering in us just doing our own thing and us charting our own course and us saying, hey, God, I, you know, whatever. I think you're just going to love me no matter what, and I'm just going to live any way I want. We actually found out there was problems with that. And there was another big music festival, wasn't there, that happened on the West Coast. It was Woodstock West. It was called the Altamont Speedway Free Festival. And it was just going to be this great day. Rolling Stones were there. Crosby, Steels, and Nash and Young. Jefferson Airplane, right? Who else was there? Anybody know? Shout it out. Hell's Angels. But they weren't singing. Okay. <laughs> yes, the Hell's Angels were there but I don't think they sang anything. And so it was supposed to be a, just a great day of peace and love and joy and celebrating. We just all just going to love each other. And the day was marked with nothing but violence. Like, so you had a woman who was stabbed to death. You had two other people that were killed by hit and run accidents. You know, the person that just took too much LSD and they drowned themselves in an irrigation canal. The Hells Angels were there and that was a problematic. I think somebody gave the Hells Angels their baby to protect which was not a good idea, right? So it was a mess. Here's the point, everybody. Here's the point. We say we're going to go our own way, chart our own course. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And we end up with a mess on our hands. You know, for most of my life, I, I read the story, the Ten Commandments, and then you've got the golden calf. There's this famous, this famous, this famous movie called The Ten Commandments. It's all about this. And while Moses is up on the mountain receiving these famous Ten Commandments, you have the people down below creating what? An image, creating an idol, and they create this golden calf. And I always used to think, that's so stupid. Golden calf. I mean, that's just so, I mean, that just shows how archaic and goofy and ridiculous and who would bow down to a big golden calf? It's dumb. And then I decided to actually study it. You know what the golden calf represents? Money, sex, power. I thought to myself, maybe we still do have a problem with those three things, huh? I think actually you can trace back all of the problems to, with our world to bowing down to those three things and to abusing those three things. Money says, I'll do what I want. It's my money. I'll do what I want. It's my power. I'll do what I want. It's my sex. And then we just, problems. But are we willing to recognize God's standards? And that's where the rub comes in. That's where the rub comes in. How can we actually live free? 
2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to pick it up in verse number uh, 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When you turn to the exact representation of who God is, which is found in Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of him, and you say, what would Jesus do? How would he act? Can I see Jesus saying that? I just said some words out of my mouth. Would Jesus say the same thing? I did some things. Would Jesus do the same thing? The veil is removed because now we get the exact representation. We get the exact masterpiece, the exact picture from God. The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. We want to be free, right? We want to scream out like Mel Gibson in Braveheart, freedom, right? We want to be free. We want to be free. I was driving um, near my neighborhood recently, and I saw this incredible sight. It was a bald eagle. I couldn't believe it in my neighborhood, and it was just majestic. I mean, he just filled the sky, just soaring. I thought, man, that is so incredible. You You know why that is so awesome? Because God designed and created the eagle to own the skies. He didn't create him to own the land. If that eagle said, you know what? I don't want to own the skies anymore. I want to own the dirt. I want to walk on grass. That's how I want to live my life. He probably wouldn't make it long. He'd be dead because he's living outside of the freedom. He's living outside of the lane that God created for him. That is a similar thing that happens to us. We want to be free because we want to be free. I don't want to live under the constraints of your standards, God. And all it leads to is bondage and death. The woman caught in adultery, the prodigal son in the pig pen, all of these stories. Oh, Cain kills his brother Abel. We could go on and on and on with these problems that exist. Instead, we need to live free and free in Christ. Now, I want to end this way. I always call this Dr. King weekend. This is, this is his weekend. When he spoke on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, he said, let justice roll down, right? Let justice roll down. What was he, what was he quoting? He was quoting a verse from the Bible, right? The book of Amos. Let it roll down. There's a couple things that work there. Number one, it means it's rolling down from somewhere. What you did not have Dr. King saying was, I think this is the way this country should do civil rights. Did you ever hear him say that? No, 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 no. He's like, let justice roll down from somewhere, from God. That God has a standard. He has a standard for justice. He has a standard for way of living. And that's why the civil rights movement has so much power. That's why it made so much change. Because Dr. King says, you know what? Society thinks that justice ought to be this. No, he never said that. He never said that. He said, it comes from God. There's a standard. And when you live by that standard, that's where the power is. Not because Dr. King had an idea. It happened because he said, justice is rolling down from somewhere. God has boundaries. He has limits for us. He has a standard in which we should live by. We're constrained by that when we have faith in the picture that he has painted for us in the masterpiece of Jesus Christ. This is where the power is, and this is the way out of the mess. If I find myself in a mess individually, the way out of the mess is to come back to God's standards, to honor that and to have faith in that as I see it in Jesus Christ. Leads me. How do we find ourselves out of a mess in a community or even globally? We find we get out of that mess by honoring the standards of God and understanding who God is as we see reflected in the exact representation. That is Jesus. That is Jesus Christ. There is always a standard. I um, I've did something recently I've never done before. I, I did a New Year's Eve wedding. I've never done a New Year's Eve wedding. It is in Palm Springs, California. Fabulous. I mean, the weather. 
Every time I go to California, I say, how is it that I don't live here? Other than the earthquakes and the mudslides and the fires, I mean, what a, what a fabulous place. Now, I hear in Palm Springs in the summertime, it's 125 degrees, but we were there in December, right? And it was 60 and su- there wasn't a cloud in the sky a couple of days. The wedding was magnificent on a golf course. So picturesque. So we decided that we were going to go hiking on the day of the rehearsal. So my kids are with me, wife, kids, we're all there together. So we're going to go out hiking. We're at this place called Indian Canyon. And it's a pretty long hike. It's a beautiful hike. What a gorgeous day. We hike a long ways into this canyon. And on the way back, my kids say, hey, let's take a different path on the way back. Now, immediately I'm scared. You know why? Because we did this uh, a few years ago. We took a different path and it and extended our, our hike by like five miles. And I knew there was a deadline to be, you know, at the rehearsal. And I was afraid of missing that. One of the things I try not to do is take on the wrath of the bride on the wedding weekend. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to, I want to make their life easier, right? So I, I really want to get, so We stood on top of a mountain, and the kids said, okay, let's take this over this way. And here's what I did. I was able to see on top of this mountain, I saw an oasis of trees, right, where the water was. That's where our car was parked. And as long as I could keep that in my sight, I knew we were good. I knew knew we would get out of the mess that we were in no matter what, right? There was a time when we dipped behind the mountain, so I took out my phone. I pulled out the compass, and I said, okay, I know the oasis is that way. So no matter which way we go, even though I can't see it, I know where true north is. I know how to get back on track. That's God's standards. That's what Dr. King talked about. Justice has to roll down from somewhere. If you find yourself in a mess right now or any other time in your life, I encourage you to go back to Jesus Christ, the exact representation of who God is, and to begin to, begin to allow your life to line up with who Jesus Christ as is represented in the picture, the masterpiece that is painted for us. Just here's what, here's what Dr. King says, and I'll close with this. This is what he has to say about Jesus. Christianity has no meaning devoid of Christ. The noble principles of Christianity remain abstract until they're personified in a person. We don't have a painting. We have a person. Christ becomes the center or the pivotal point around which everything in the Christian faith revolves. This is what the book of Revelation means when it says he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the center not only of our faith, but of history, and all nations must bow before him. Have you ever put your faith in Christ? Have you ever centered your life on the picture of God that is presented to us in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. Have you centered? Are you allowing your life to revolve around that? This is what Romans is talking about. And when you do, there is power. Jesus says, actually, when you center your life on the picture, he, Jesus, that his spirit comes in and that you are made new. You're made alive in your spirit. And that is a very powerful thing. And if you've never done that before, I want to encourage you, along with the words of Dr. King here this morning, that you center your life on that picture. I don't know what picture you have of God, but on that picture of Christ, the masterpiece, the exact representation. And I encourage you to do that this morning. If you're watching on Grace Live, you can click the prayer button. If you want somebody to pray with you, you can, you can go over to our prayer wall, be happy to pray with you. And I'm going to pray with you right now. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you give us standards 
that you constrain us from the things that will cause harm to our life. And God, right now, as many of us in this room and on Grace Live are deciding, will I center my life on the picture of Jesus Christ as presented to me? God, I just ask that you would help us, that you would breathe life into us, that you would give us that picture of who you are, Christ, and that your Holy Spirit would come into us right now and would fill us with life anew. In your holy name, amen.